we would understand, God, that we, but we wouldn't just understand with our minds, Lord, that you would change our hearts, that you would challenge us, that you would encourage us, God, that you would get the message across to each and every one of us that we need to hear, Lord, maybe not even what we want to hear, but what we need to hear, God, and we open our hearts to receive your word, to receive your spirit. We want to change. We want to grow, and we know that happens through relationship with you, and you give us the opportunity through your spirit and by your word to grow in that relationship. So help us to see you today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. If you've been with us the last few weeks, uh, we were in Acts chapter 9 for a couple weeks, and we see this magnificent transformation that happens in Saul of Tarsus, also known as Paul of Tarsus. If you recall, he was persecuting Christians. He was basically like the head honcho of persecution. At least that's what the text seems to imply. And then all of a sudden, on his way to Damascus, the Lord met him where he was at, and and just radically changed his life, revealed who he was. It was Jesus Christ who actually showed up in Paul's life. And from that point forward, after the few days he was blind and Ananias laid hands on him, he was changed. He was changed completely. Not perfectly, but he was completely changed. And we see right off the bat, he goes and preaches the gospel, right? And he's preaching the gospel to to Jews, the traditional Jews and the Hellenistic Jews. And what happens? We don't see anyone get saved. In fact, we see both of these groups try to kill Saul of Tarsus. So his ministry right off the bat, it it didn't take off. Paul the Apostle was Paul the Apostle, but the powerful things that he did in his life didn't come for uh, till about after a decade after he was first converted. We see the disciples as they're seeing all this unwanted attention that Saul of Tarsus is gaining. They send him back home. They say, go back to Tarsus. You're causing too much attention. We're concerned for you. We're worried that you're going to get killed by these different groups of Jews. So Saul goes back. Then the text picks up on Peter, right? Peter has been used profoundly by the Lord all over, really, Israel, even Samaria, But then we begin to see some of these amazing things that God used Peter to do, specifically miracles. If you were with us last week, remember that paralytic um, who had been bedridden for eight years. Peter, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by literally the power of Jesus Christ, he was able to heal this man. The, The man was able to get up and walk. Then after that, if that wasn't enough... God uses Peter to bring this dead woman named Tabitha back to life. So the text, at least right now, is focusing on the ministry of Peter. Peter is being used profoundly by the Lord. But in this chapter specifically, God's going to use Peter in a way that he's never used him before. God's going to use Peter to... Preach the gospel to the Gentiles. But it doesn't start there. Before Peter gets the opportunity to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, God has to do a work in Peter. See, Peter, though he's saved, though he's changed, though he's a different man, there's still a transforming work that God is doing in his life. And specifically in this text, the Lord is transforming Peter's traditions, the traditions of Judaism title of this teaching is transformed tradition transformed tradition see peter was a man that struggled with legalism he got stuck in his ways and we see that a little bit in the gospels and also here specifically in this text in acts chapter 10 but god what he's going to do before peter's ready to share the gospel with the gentiles there are still some changes that need to take place in peter's life he has to transform him um of these uh these these uh traditions that he's kind of bound to that he's kind of stuck to the lord literally has to open his eyes in preparation so that peter is ready to fulfill his mission and sharing the gospel to the gentiles if you recall if you're with us last uh Week in Acts chapter 9, verse 43, uh, we see that transforming work starting there, specifically with the legalism thing. Peter was the, at the house of Simon the Tanner, right? 
And we talked about how hard it is to be a tanner. Yeah, it is. It's hard. It's difficult. Well, tanners in that culture, they were frowned upon. Why? Because they dealt with dead animals all the time. They literally tanned hide. they hides. They worked with leather. Where does leather come from? It comes from animals. So the animals had to die. And when you touched a dead animal, you were considered ceremonially unclean. You couldn't go to the synagogue to worship. You couldn't go to the temple to worship. You couldn't uh, interact with certain people. You had to stay away. So you weren't really allowed to have a lot of friends being a tanner. It was a rough occupation. Traditionally, a Jew wouldn't be caught dead hanging out at a tanner's house. But we see God calls Peter to this tanner's house because he's trying to get him out of his tradition. He's trying to change him. He's trying to mold him. He's trying to shape him and prepare him for the ministry and mission that he has for him. And it starts there in the tanner's house. Let's look at the text. It's Acts chapter 10, verse 1. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. So we see this man named Cornelius. He's in this place called Caesarea. Now Caesarea was primarily a Roman place. There were many Gentiles in Caesarea. There were many idols that were worshipped. In fact, Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea in the Gospels in the midst of all these idols and temples. Jesus revealed his identity to him. If you remember, he asked the disciples, he said, who do men say that I am? They said like a prophet, maybe John the Baptist or something like that, or, uh, uh, or a different prophet. And he says, who do you say that I am? They said, you are, Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Meaning that, that this wasn't just something you came up with in your head. He said, my father in heaven revealed this to you. So we see Caesarea was a place that Jesus previously took the disciples to, to reveal his identity. It's a little ironic that Jesus is going to reveal his identity to Cornelius in the same place. So Cornelius, this man, he's a centurion of the Roman Empire. So a centurion, traditionally, uh, people say, typically say, oh, they led 100 people. Uh, well, that's just a, a vague guesstimate. Literally, when you look at history, they led anywhere from 80 to 1,000 people. Centurions, they were the real deal. Literally, they were the backbone They were the backbone of the Roman army. Why? Well, at this stage in Rome, they've already overcome all these different territories, okay? So they don't need a bunch of leaders that are super aggressive warriors that'll take over other places. They need leaders who will stabilize the people that they've already taken over. So Rome is occupying Israel at this time period. And they put different centurions into different places, not just to oversee the army, the soldiers, the 80 to 1,000, but also to um, to oversee the people and to make sure the people are walking in line with the authority of Caesar. They're literally the backbone. They needed to have uh, exceptional character. They weren't just hot headed people that just went into battle all the time. No, they were stable. They thought through things. They were great leaders. And what we see God doing with Cornelius is he's using his position as a soldier, a centurion in the Roman army to prepare him for his calling as a Christian, a soldier for Christ. This is the first of five points. God calls us to positions to transform our character. God calls us to positions to transform our character. Now, practically, we got to think what it took to be a Roman officer, not just a normal soldier, but some that oversaw other men in the army. He had to be a man of honor. He had to be a man of integrity. He had to be a great leader, as we mentioned, not only able to lead people, but also able to submit to authority. He was a man that submitted to his leader, ultimately being Caesar. Had to be a man of loyalty. Had to be a man of of selflessness, willing to lay down his life for his leader, Caesar, but also for his country, being Rome. See, all these character qualities were not just important for his job as a Roman soldier or Roman officer, 
But all these character qualities were essential for his role and later becoming a Christian, a soldier for Jesus Christ. And the Bible teaches us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, the Bible teaches us that we're all called to be soldiers for Jesus Christ, man or woman. Seasoned saint or little child, we're all called to be soldiers for Christ. It says in Second Timothy chapter two verse three, "You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier." The Lord was using. Cornelius's occupation as a Roman soldier to teach him what it means to be a soldier for Jesus Christ later down the road. That's exactly what Cornelius will become in this text. He'll become a soldier for Jesus Christ. Maybe your occupation isn't a soldier though. But regardless of what your occupation is, Regardless of what your various roles are, positions, God uses all our roles, our positions, our career paths, all of those things to raise us up to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ. As a father, as a husband, as a wife, as a mother, as a son, as a daughter, as a firefighter, as a police officer, as a real estate agent, as an insurance salesman, you name it, God literally uses your positions, your occupations, all of them, even your career path to raise you up to become a good soldier for Jesus Christ. That's what God God does in his sovereignty. But we got to filter through and go, wait, Lord, in my occupation, in this role, as a father, as an employee, with this career, how are you using this to make me a better soldier for Jesus Christ? I want to understand. And we got to engage our minds and desire to understand how God wants to use our specific position, where we are right now, what we're doing right now, to become better soldiers for Jesus Christ. That's exactly what the Lord was doing in Cornelius's life. He was teaching him what it meant to be a soldier for Jesus Christ. Now this man is a man of impeccable character. Look what it says in verse 2. He's a devout man, one who feared God. Devoted both the country, his God, his leader. He's one that feared God. Now, um, it's the phrase God-fearers, um, referring to Gentiles who recognized the God of Israel. They were referred to as God-fearers. So though um, you know they had Caesar as a God and they worshipped other gods, mainly the planets, uh, Jupiter and, and all these different things, this man Cornelius, he recognizes that Yahweh, literally Yahweh is truly God. He's a God-fearer. He serves and worships the God of Israel. He has some form of relationship with Yahweh. But not only that, it's not only an internal relationship that he has with Yahweh. Look what it says here. Who gave alms generously to the people. It wasn't just internal, him doing this in the secret place, praying and seeking the Lord and fearing God. It was external. He gave alms. He was generous. He took care of people who were in need. Now, I think it's important to clarify something. What's an alm? What are alms? Okay, alms, they're basically uh, financial support that you give to someone who's in need. Okay, so say um, I'm... uh, um, I'm leaving Walmart and you know, there's always somebody on the corner there uh, at Walmart and they're asking me for money. The Lord knocks on my heart and he says, Hey, you need to give this person money specifically. Sometimes I feel a nudge. Sometimes I don't. And, and I give him money. That's, that's an alm. Or say I have a friend who's a missionary uh, in another country and I know he needs support. And we've done this in the past. Um, and, and the Lord knocks on my heart. You need to support him. So I give him an alm. But an alm is not a tithe. And I don't take my, my I don't say like, okay, I gave the guy at a gas station $100 so I'm taking it out of my tithes. No, that's not what an alm is. Alms, tithes, and offerings are different. Tithe, specifically, it means a tenth, okay? A tenth of your income, where does it go? Well, in Malachi chapter 3, we can look at it real quick. We see it comes to the storehouse of God. It's Malachi chapter 3, verse 8. It says, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, In what way have we robbed you? 
in tithes and offerings. Okay, he's distinguishing the two. You are cursed with a curse for you have robbed me. Even this whole nation bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me now in this as the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. One of the few times that God says, test me in this, try me in this. So we're not supposed to test God, but in this specific situation, he says, test me. You will not outgive me, okay? If you bring your tithes and your offerings into the storehouse of God, what's the storehouse of God? Well, in that text specifically, it's the temple, but we don't worship at the temple. So it's actually your place of worship. Whatever your home church is, tithe literally means a tenth. The Bible teaches us that a tenth of our income is supposed to go to the place that we worship. You know what happens when we do that, God says? He says, I promise you. I will blow your mind how much I give to you. I'm so glad that I learned this early on in my Christian walk. Literally, I've mentioned it before when I was getting $40 Walmart cards for food a week. That's it. No more than that. Then every two weeks, we got a $10 bill and I would tithe and I would see God bless us tremendously. Literally, people would pull up to our houses and just drop off tons of food. And I'm like, Dude, this is so much. I, I was afraid that that extra $5, uh, I, I wasn't going to be able to eat a day, actually. But no, the Lord provided. I was just talking to my mom about this. She's like, man, I wish we started tithing earlier in our lives. My parents are retired right now. Okay, my, my dad in his retirement, he started a paint company. He used to be a health physicist, and now he paints houses. I don't know. You got to ask him about that. Something he wanted to do. But but my mom, my mom's not working. She says, we have more now than we did back then. We were making way more money back then. The Lord finds these ways to provide for us when we are willing to give some to him. And it's not about the finances. It's about the generosity, the heart of it. That's what we see in this person, Cornelius. He gave alms. Okay, real quick, alms, obviously given to somebody that's in need, the Lord puts on my heart, tithes, that's a tenth, offerings is anything more than that tenth, okay? It's like God just, uh, I came into the lottery, let's say, I won the lottery, it's never, I've never bought a lottery ticket in my life, okay, it's never going to happen, alright? But say, I, I won the lottery and I got $20 million and I'm like, man, God bless me so much, I don't want to just give, uh, you know, 10% of that $2 million. I want to give... 5 million, or I want to get 11, give 11% or 20% or whatever the case may be. That's what an offering it is. It, it, it's, it's anything more than that 10th, that tithe. So we see this man, Cornelius, he's generous. He has a generous heart that's directly connected to the God that he worships. Why? Because God is a generous God. So he gives alms. It says, and he prayed to God always he prayed to God always, not just like, you know, randomly, like whenever he was in a bind or like, you know, going through a hard time or he was sick or whatever the case may be. No, it says he prayed to God always. He prayed without ceasing before even Paul said in First Thessalonians to pray without ceasing. Why? Because he loved God. He wanted to talk to God. He wanted a relationship with God, constantly seeking God. And look what happens as he's praying to God, as he's seeking God. Look at verse three. About the ninth hour, which would have been about 3 p.m., a customary time of prayer. Often Jews would uh, pray three times a day back from the, the Daniel days when um, when he would pray three times a day. So this was uh, a customary time for, for prayer, the ninth hour. And it says he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming and saying to him, Cornelius. As he's praying, he receives this vision. What's a vision? It's an audio-visual message from the Lord. It could be from God directly, or it could be from an angel. Like we see in this, it's a, a heavenly messenger of some sort. It could be Jesus himself, it could be Yahweh, who could be whoever, but someone that Yahweh sends, an angel, whoever, to give us a message. So God sends this angel to give Cornelius this message. But once again, when did it happen? It happened when he was praying. It happened when he was seeking God. If we want to get vision from the Lord, then we got to seek the Lord. Vision that comes from the Lord. It comes when we're seeking God. So he's seeking God. He receives this vision. Let's look at it. Verse 4. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. 
says, what is it, Lord, to the angel? The angel's representing God. What is it? I, I want to know what you want to tell me. See, he had a willingness. He had a desire to hear from God. If we want to hear from God. We got to be willing to listen. We got to be open to what he's going to tell us. Sometimes we don't want to hear what God has to tell us. God, I, I'm good if you tell me this, but if you tell me this, I don't want to hear this. And we could close our ears. We can close our eyes. We could close our hearts and say, God, I don't want to hear that. He says, you don't want to know the truth and the truth will set you free. We want to know the truth that sets us free. We've got to be willing to listen to the truth Cornelius was. He has no idea what God's going to tell him. God could have told him anything. But he was ready. He was willing. He desired to hear from the Lord. And this is what this angel says on God's behalf. Again, he says, Your prayers and your alms alms have come up for a memorial before God. Hear that? Remember, Cornelius prayed constantly. And now, probably for the first time in his life, we don't know for sure, but probably, it's not every day an angel comes on the scene. This angel comes to him and says, you know, God's been hearing all your prayers. I'm sure Cornelius had tons of prayers that he prayed that never got answered. Probably had a bunch of prayers that he prayed that also did get answered. And sometimes we can pray prayer and it doesn't get answered. We think God doesn't hear. The angel reassures Cornelius, God has heard all your prayers. He's heard every single one of them. He's not deaf to them. He knows exactly what you're going through. He hears your prayers. Your prayers come up to God. Not only that, he also says, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. He says, not only do I hear what you're saying, I see what you're doing. I see what you're doing with your life. You're giving generously. You're really trying to live for the Lord. Sometimes we don't consider that enough, that God is omnipresent. He literally sees every single thing that we're doing, whether good or bad, every single thing. I wonder if Cornelius really thought about this beforehand. There's no way for us to know. But there is a reality that we can pull from this. Everything that we're saying, all the prayers that we're praying, everything that we're doing, God is watching. He's intently concerned with the details of our life but do we practice his presence do we always pretend like he's watching because it's not a pretending thing it's a reality yeah he's actually watching sometimes i forget sometimes i forget that god is in every situation he's watching me every single moment but when i'm reminded by scriptures like this it it, it produces something in my heart like man i want to honor god in everything i do everything i say because i know he's watching i don't question it i know it but sometimes we have to be reminded this angel comes and reminds cornelius hey god hears your prayers and he sees what you're doing he sees the alms that you're giving text continues Verse 5. Now, send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. So, Peter was still at Joppa at Simon the tanner's house. In Acts chapter 9, verse 43, it says he was there many days. Like, not just he stayed a weekend or one night. He was there many days. This was 30 miles away from Caesarea. And what we see God doing here is he's using this place, specifically this place at Simon the Tanner's house, to purge Peter of his legalism, to transform his character. Point number two, God calls us to places to transform our lives. God calls us to places to transform our lives. See, all these were building blocks. The fact that Peter was at Simon the Tanner's house, it was to do a work in him. He needed to be in that place to receive that specific work from God so that he wouldn't be so legalistic. He didn't just say, hey, I want you to go preach to the Gentiles. No, no, he's going to build off of it. And the first thing he does, I'm going to bring you to a place that your tradition would deem unclean. This is the house where we see Peter is going to receive this powerful vision as we mentioned it was untraditional to stay at a tanner's house because they worked with dead animals all the time but god's going to use this label as uncleanliness at simon the tanner's house to open up the door for peter to be ready to share the gospel with the gentiles but god doesn't just use simon the tanner's house 
Simon uses, sorry, God uses all the places that he calls us to. Every place that God calls, he uses it to transform us. Let me show you. It's Deuteronomy chapter 8. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, God explains why he brought the Israelites into the wilderness. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 to 3, we'll read. He says, And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So we humbled you, allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So I brought you in the wilderness to humble you, to test you, so that you could recognize I'm all you need. I'm all you need. Man doesn't live by bread alone. I did this in your life. I brought you into the wilderness. I brought you to this specific place. Think the Israelites liked the wilderness? No, they hated it. They wanted to go back to Egypt. But God says, I'm doing this for your good. I need to change your hearts. Your hearts are hard. They're stubborn. And I need to bring you to this place to, to change you, to transform you. And this is what God does with us whether he brings us through those seasons in the wilderness where it's just like trial after trial after trial. I'm hot, I'm irritable, everything's going wrong. Whether it's a season on the mountaintop where everything's just awesome. Blessings, blessings, blessings. Season in the valley where it's darker than it's ever been before. The places you live now, the places that you work, the places that you go. God uses all of these places to change us, to transform us. But again, we have to have that mind to go, God, why do you have me in the place that you, that I am? I just want to understand, like, where, what's so specific about running springs that you want me to live here and be a part of this community to change what in my life? To change what? Because that's what we see. God brings people to places to transform their lives. This is what the Lord does. And it's all in preparation for some that's going to come later down the road. See, Peter, he had to embrace this time at Simon the Tanner's house so that he'd be ready for the mission that God had for him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. We need to embrace the places that God calls us to because if we don't embrace the places that God calls us to in the present, we won't be ready for the places that God calls us to in the future. He says, the Israelites, they were in the wilderness for 40 years because they didn't get the lesson. He says, you're going to stay here forever until you learn what I'm trying to teach you. Then when your work is done, I can bring you to the next place. But until that's done, it's not happening. So the Lord, through this angel, he tells Cornelius that Peter's lodging with Simon the Tanner. At the end of verse 6, it says, he will tell you what you must do. Well, why didn't the angel just tell Cornelius what he must do? The angel's there. God already sent a messenger. Sounds like a waste of 30 miles and a lot of time and a lot of people's effort and energy. God could have just told him by himself. Why did he say, I, I want Peter to tell you? Because God uses man to fulfill his plan. He uses people. Not because he needs people, but because he wants people. He wants to use people. So he says, no, I'm not going to give you the message through the angel. I'm not going to give you the message directly. I'm going to give you the, the message through a flawed individual that I'm still working on. So he sends his men to Simon Peter, who's in Joppa. Look at verse 7. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So we see Cornelius. Yes, he's a man under authority, but he's also a man that has authority. We see these servants. They waited on him continuously. I don't believe personally that they did this because they had to. Yes, they're servants, but the type of character that we see in Cornelius he was a good master. He was a good master. These people followed him. They were obedient to him. If you want to know a good leader, watch the people that follow him. These guys were faithful. Why? Because Cornelius was faithful. He was faithful to God. He was faithful to Caesar. 
and we see the faithfulness of these servants, I'm convinced that it was produced from the faithful living of Cornelius. In Acts chapter 10, verse 8, So, when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Okay, so this would have been about 12 p.m. Peter goes on the housetop to pray. He's like, what is he doing on the roof, right? Well, roofs during that time in that culture, they were basically like patios. It'd be like going out on your back deck to get some alone time with the Lord. So they'd go up there, they'd pray. Uh, it was typically a flat surface. So Peter is up there. He's seeking God. He's praying to God. The text says in Acts chapter 10, verse 10, Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance. So Peter's praying. Then what happens? He gets distracted by hunger. You ever engage in something spiritual only to get distracted by some fleshly desire? It happens all the time, right? It's like, okay, I'm trying to pay attention to service, but all of a sudden I'm thinking about what I'm going to eat afterwards. I'm trying to pray right now, but then all of a sudden I go from talking to God to talking to myself, planning my day out. I do this all the time, driving up the mountain. I'm guilty, okay? I'm still trying to learn the lesson. Uh, I was doing it this morning. I'm praying. It's like a great time for me to drive and pray. And and I'm just praying to the Lord like, oh man, praying about the message, praying about things that are going on. And all of a sudden I go from talking to God to talking to myself. What am I doing after this? What am I doing this week? When do I have to leave to get down to Aliso Viejo? It's like, wait, I'm not praying anymore. I'm talking to myself. So for me, it helps to speak out loud, okay, to pray out loud or to a lot of times I'll journal my prayer so I can stay focused. I'm not talking to myself. I'm talking to the Lord. Peter, he gets distracted by hunger, but the Lord's going to use this hunger. In the midst of being distracted by hunger, it says he fell into a trance and he's going to see this vision. Look at verse 11. And saw heaven opened in an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. In there were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. So basically, there's this sheet, okay? It represents an open door. And, and, and in this open door, if you will, or open window, there are all these unclean animals. God's going to tell them, rise and eat. Well, Jews, a kosher diet is very strict. And you're not allowed to eat certain things. You can't eat reptiles. You can't eat cheeseburgers, I know, right? That's why I can never do a kosher diet. There's specific things you can eat and you can't eat. Okay, so listen to this. So if you eat a burger, okay, without cheese, it's a sin. No, if you eat a burger without cheese, you're not allowed to eat dairy for until the next meal. Like you can't have a snack with cheese. But if you eat cheese, this is in the Talmud, if you eat like a cheese sandwich, you just have to wait an hour uh, before you eat meat again. Okay, I guess the cheese digests faster. I don't know. But this is what they this is what they do. Regardless, there are specific laws that were given in Leviticus about eating certain animals, not eating other animals. You couldn't eat reptiles. You couldn't eat various birds. You couldn't eat various things uh, across the board. It was extremely strict. So basically what's happening here is that God, he is using this illustration to teach Peter a spiritual lesson. He says, rise and eat, eat what's unclean, break your traditions. Okay. Go against your traditions because I got a lesson for you. It wasn't about eating an animal. Okay. It wasn't about eating an animal. It was about opening the door once again for the gospel to be presented to the Gentiles. So look at how Peter responds in verse 14. Peter said, not so Lord, for I've never eaten anything common or unclean. I've I've stuck with a kosher diet my whole life. Peter says, no, Lord, I'm not going to do what you're asking me to do. Peter had a habit of doing this, saying no to the Lord, right? If you remember in John chapter 13, uh, verse 8, when Jesus goes to wash the disciples' feet the night before he dies, when he gets to Peter, Peter says, no, Lord, you're not washing my feet. Why would Peter say that? He says, this is beneath you. Like, you're my master. I'm the servant. Like, you shouldn't be washing my feet. And Jesus says, in other words, if I don't wash my, wash your feet, you have no part with me. He says, what I'm doing, you don't understand, but you will understand after this. Then again, same night, 
Jesus, he tells Simon Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. What did Peter say? No, I won't. No way, Lord. Not going to happen, God. Once again, God says, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter says, no, I'm not doing it. Now, we got to have some empathy and compassion for Peter. He wasn't, in all these circumstances, he wasn't just saying no to the Lord as a direct act of rebellion. He wasn't like, uh, I don't care what you say, Jesus. I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. No, each of these situations were rooted in a lack of understanding. He didn't understand why God was asking him to do what he was asking him to do. God, why would uh, you wash my feet? If anything, I should be washing your feet. There's no way I would deny you. I love you. I can't eat anything unclean because it's against tradition. See, Peter's lack of understanding led him to a place where on a regular basis he was saying no to the Lord. But the Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 to 6, in Proverbs 3, 5 to 6, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Don't lead on your understanding. doesn't mean we shouldn't think. The Lord desires to give us understanding, but there's certain situations where we have no idea why God's telling us to do what he's telling us to do and we just got to take a step of faith and go, okay, I'm going to walk in obedience even though I don't understand what you're telling me to do. The other side of it is, God, I don't understand, so I'm not going to do it. That's what Peter's doing in this moment because he doesn't understand it. It's hindering his obedience. And we can do this as well when we say, Lord, I'm not going to do it until I understand. Every time we do that, you know what's going to happen? We're going to miss out on something special. We're going to miss out on something so special because the Lord doesn't just ask us to do things for him. He asks us to do things for us, for our benefit, so that we can have opportunities. And we say, no, Lord, I don't understand, so I'm not going to do it. He says, that's your loss. I'm by loss. That's, that, that's your loss. See, the Lord, he's discipling Peter. He's trying to get him out of, his, out of his traditional forms and ways of thinking. He has him at Simon the Tanner's house. Now he's telling him to eat that which is unclean. Why? Because Peter had a habit of getting stuck in his ways. Even later on, we see he falls back into religiosity in Galatians chapter 1 and 2. We'll talk about it in a couple months. And Paul calls him out for it, for, for basically leaving the Gentiles out and sitting with the Jews. So this was an ongoing work that God had to do in Peter. Peter was stuck in his way, so God was trying to teach him a new way of doing things so that he could continue to do that work in his heart and in his life. This is point number three. God asks us to do new things to transform our habits. God asks us to do new things to transform our habits. It could be habits, character, behavior, you name it. But the Lord, he often asks us to get out of our comfort zone and do things differently so that we can grow. We get stuck doing the same thing the same way all the time, especially if that way isn't of the Lord. We prevent ourselves from growing. Jesus said it like this in Luke chapter 5. In Luke chapter 5. He says, verse 37, he says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins and both are preserved. What's Jesus saying? Is he really concerned about wine and wineskins? Okay, not really. He's concerned about the heart of man. And this is illustration, illustrates the heart of man. He specifically, this is in combatants with the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees that were stuck in their same way. So let me explain this a little better. So a wineskin, traditionally it was made of goat leather, sometimes even goat bladders. And what do you know about leather? So Some of you have leather Bibles, right? Over time it gets brittle. Okay, it's not as soft. Okay, so these wineskins, when wine was poured into them over time, the wineskin would get brittle, it would get hard, and it wouldn't expand. Well, new wine, it actually expands for a time period. So it must be put into new wineskin. What's God saying? 
when you're that old wineskin, when, when you've hardened your heart, when you've got set in your ways and stuck in your ways, you can't handle the new things that I'm trying to teach you. You can't handle the new things that I'm trying to do in you. You'll simply burst. He's not saying our hearts are going to explode. He's saying it just can't happen. If your heart's so hard, you can't learn new things. But if you got new, new wineskin, if your heart is soft, if your heart is like fresh leather, able to stretch, able to change, then you can receive the new wine. You can receive the new things that God is trying to do in your life. See, Peter was stuck in his ways. You ever get stuck in your ways? When's the last time you embrace significant change in your life? Is there something that God has told you to do? Hey, you keep doing this thing the same way, and I want you to do it a new way. One time the Lord, I was, I was walking and praying on a prayer walk, and the Lord said, you're religious. What? You're, you're religious. It's not, I wasn't audible. He just spoke to my heart. I was thinking about things in a, in a state of prayer, and I went, what, what do you mean I'm religious? He's like, you're in the same routine day in and day out. And it was so cool. Right after that, I was reading in the Word, um, I think it's in Isaiah, where um, it is, this is in several passages, uh, but I think a lot of it had to do with my devotion life. I, I was doing the same thing the same way, okay? It was just journaling. I would read a chapter, read three chapters, whatever the case was, and then I'd go about my day, and it was just, okay, wake up at 5, 5.30 every morning, do this, yeah, then I'd work out, and it, 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 fall into this thing. And it's not that any of that stuff was bad. The Lord said, I don't want you to get stuck in religion. I want a relationship with you. I want you to start not just reading in the morning. I want you to start doing devotions at nighttime, too. So, so he added it to me, and I went through the season, and there was time, I want you to add worship into your devotion life. Switch it up, do new things, don't get stuck in the same way all the time, because that's what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees started off as a very good thing to preserve the word of God, and then they ended up getting stuck, set in their ways. See, Peter, an apostle, he got set in his ways too. So the Lord said, hey, we got to do things differently. He asked him to eat something unclean. In Acts chapter 10, verse 15, the text continues. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. Okay, in that culture, things were either deemed holy, which literally means set apart or special. Okay, got to set this apart. This is holy or common. This is, this is clean. Holiness is rare. Common is, is common. Certain animals that are set apart for you to eat, certain ones that aren't. But he's not talking about animals. He's talking about the Gentiles. Why? Because the Gentiles were considered common. They were considered unclean. You have a lot less Hebrews, the, set, the people that were set apart for God, God's covenant people, than you do Gentiles. So God says, hey, hey, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. What you think is unclean, these Gentiles... I've now set them apart to hear the gospel. And that's what he's getting at. They're no longer common. They're no longer unclean. I've sanctified them to hear the word of God. That doesn't mean that right off the bat they have a relationship with God. He says, I set them apart to hear the gospel. The gospel is opened up for them now, which we'll see at the end of Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, verse 16. This was done three times and the object was taken up into heaven. Three is the magic number for Peter, right? He denied the Lord three times. Jesus had to tell him he loved him three times. And now he had to learn this lesson three times to solidify it in his mind. Sometimes it takes me more than three. So I have nothing to say against Peter. The text continues. Acts chapter 10, verse 17. Now, while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. Peter was perplexed. He he didn't understand still like, what's God's deal with the unclean animals? Like, what is that going to do for me eating unclean animals? He still didn't understand exactly what God was telling him to do. We'll also see in verse 19 that he thought about the vision. So even though Peter has a lack of clarity as to what God's trying to show him, he thinks about it. He ponders, he wonders, he, 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 even though he's perplexed, he desires to understand. See, sometimes God will speak things into our life. We have no idea what he's talking about. Like, what are you, t- I'm religious, really? No way. 
He'll say things to us. And we don't always understand what He means right off the bat. But He desires that we would purpose to understand, that we would engage our minds. That's why He tells Joshua in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, meditate on the Word day and night. Think about this constantly. Think about the direction that God's given you all the time. Why? Because what happens? Sometimes God will give me a word. Like, he'll, like I'll be doing my devotions and he'll give me a verse that like really stands out to me. And I'm like, I don't know. I should write this down. I don't know why. I'll write it down. And later on, I'll start thinking about it, thinking about it, thinking about it. These things will start taking place in my life that day or that week. And then all of a sudden I'll go, you dummy. That's what God was trying to tell you all along. But if I don't think about it, if I don't ponder, if I don't wonder... I might not understand what what he's trying to get across me. See, Peter, he had a desire to understand the direction that God was giving to him. The text continues, Acts chapter 10, verse 18. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. What happened? It was while he was thinking about the vision that the Spirit talked to him. And and he says, I thought about the vision. The Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. This is why it's so important to meditate on his word day and night, to think about it. While we're thinking about the things that God's showing us, clarity comes. We're giving him an opportunity to speak into that thing further. Maybe he gives us one piece of the puzzle here, and as I think about it, now this other piece of the puzzle comes, and then he speaks to me a little more, and before I know it, the picture's finally coming together. That's what's happening with Peter. He's gradually getting more and more understanding, but the specific direction that the Spirit gives him, look, it says in verse 20, arise therefore go down and go with them doubting nothing for i have sent them remember these are gentiles and god says i want you to hang with them i want you to converse with them i want you to spend time with them point number four god calls us to people to transform the world god calls us to people to transform the world now we have to think about this the church is getting persecuted right on a high level right now, mainly from the Jews. But the Romans were involved with the persecution of Jesus. And now you have two servants of Cornelius. In verse 7, we see this. Two servants of Cornelius and also a soldier. Okay, So a Roman soldier comes to your house during that time period and you're a Christian, a leader in the church. You better be terrified. right? You better be terrified. But luckily, Peter had some direction for the Lord. At this point, maybe he doesn't know if he's going to get martyred or whatever the case may be. But we're going to see him fall, follow the direction that God gives him. See, God had brought these Gentiles to his house because he was using them to transform Peter to be ready at the end of this chapter to share the gospel with the Gentiles. Okay, first you're going to go to Simon the Tanner's house. Okay, he's likely a Jew, right? Then I'm going to give you this vision about eating unclean animals. Then I'm going to bring Gentiles down your path, three Gentiles, and you're going to spend some time with them. He's building, it's building blocks. I'm going to show you a little here, a little here, a little here, a little here, because I'm preparing you for the mission that's way ahead that you, you don't even know. You don't completely understand. I'm giving you little bits at a time, but see God. He doesn't just use positions. He doesn't just use places. He uses people. God calls us to people. He brings people into our life. People. It's about people. That's what God cares about. God cares about people. He doesn't care about houses. He doesn't care about cars. He cares about people more than anything else. And he uses people in our lives, not just to change us, but to change the world around us. It's opportunities with friends. It's opportunities with family members. It's opportunities with strangers. It's opportunities with co-workers. All why? Why does God bring those people into your life? to change the world around you so you can engage with them in a conversation about Jesus or even show the love of Jesus so that they recognize that there's a God who cares. And when people recognize that there's a God who cares and loves them, it changes their life. And when their lives are changed, the world around them changes. It's Acts chapter 17, verse 6 is where we get our mission from. It says, uh, these are those who turn the world upside down for uh, for Jesus, okay? It's a negative connotation. Uh, they're upset uh, in what the disciples have done and how they've changed the culture. Um, but what we see since the fall of Adam, the world is actually upside down since the fall of Adam. Not 
figuratively, spiritually, right? Because the sin in the world and the destruction that it brings. And so what the disciples really doing is turning the world right side up. They're bringing it back to where it was, where Adam and Eve initially had fellowship with God. The point is, this is exactly why God brings people into our lives, to change the world around us. You know how it happens? Change the world around us happens through conversations. It happens through interactions. It happens through acts of service. And we can't minimize any of those things. Literally, it's going to go from having a conversation with these guys to the gospel being open to all the Gentiles. Because of this conversation, we get to be saved. Now, God could have done it a whole, a whole lot of different ways, but this is the way that he chose to do it. And he chose to do it with an encounter that Peter had with three people. It's people that God's concerned about. It's people that God loves so much so that he died for the entire world. That's how much God loves people. So as we go about our weeks and we go about our days, don't forget what you're here for. You're here to love God and love people. That's why we're here. It's about the people. Yes, I love God and that teaches me what it means to love and express that agape love, that supernatural love, but it's about the encounters that I'm having with people. God uses those things to change us, but also to change the world around us. Acts chapter 10, verse 21. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. So, Peter still doesn't completely get it. Okay, why are you guys here? Like, what do you want? Are you like taking me away? You persecuting? What's the deal here? And then they say, uh, we need you to have a conversation with Cornelius. Specifically, they say, um, and to hear words from you. Cornelius needs to hear words from you. Okay, now things we see begin to click for Peter. What words does Cornelius want to hear? Well, we got to remember, Peter is uneducated and untrained. He's a fisherman, okay? That's really all he knows about, other than Jesus. So he probably assumes at this point that Cornelius isn't going to ask him about fishing lures, right? He's probably not going to ask him about what kind of boat to use uh, in the in the Sea of Galilee, right? There's only one other thing that Peter knows a lot about, and it's Jesus. So at this point, we see things start to click with Peter. He recognizes, oh, that's what God's doing. I'm supposed to talk to the centurion, um, this Roman centurion, this guy Cornelius, about Jesus. So we see, lastly, in Acts chapter 10, verse 23, it says, then he invited the men and lodged them. Okay, this is a way bigger deal than the text initially implicates. Jews didn't have Gentiles lodging with them. To be under the same roof could deem you unclean. Okay, they were separate. They looked down upon the Gentiles. The fact that Peter has these men, invites these men into the same household as him is significant. See, having Gentiles at your house, it wasn't against the Levitical law. It wasn't against God's word, but it was against Jewish traditions. And what God is doing is giving Peter direction to break his tradition. So fifth and final point, God gives us direction to transform our traditions. God gives us direction to transform our traditions. Now, let me preface this and say, it's not that all traditions are bad. You know, we celebrate Christmas and we celebrate these different things uh, in our culture. It's not that Jesus is against tradition, but Jesus is against tradition that contradicts his word. Okay, then we see that the Jews in Isaiah 60, 60, I believe, um, they were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. They weren't supposed to completely close themselves off. Yeah, they weren't supposed to be tempted by them. They weren't supposed to marry them, but they were supposed to be a light to them. We see the Lord opening up the door here with Peter to be a light to the Gentiles. But it took changing his traditions and his cultures and his customs and what he was used to to make that happen. See, sometimes we practice traditions, behaviors, habits, you name it, that are contrary to the word of God. Sometimes we don't even realize it. 
But we've got to check ourselves and go, God, are my traditions, do they line up with your scripture? Or am I stuck in this American mindset or whatever, wherever you're from, Australia, Mexico, you name it. Now you're in America. So we have these traditions that don't always line up with scripture. Let me give you one. The American dream, right? The American dream is not bad, but sometimes it produces bad things in people. Why? Because this is what I need in life. My goal in life is what? To be married, have two and a half kids, a house with a white picket fence, maybe one dog, a cat, if you're into that, whatever the case may be. But it's like, this is what America looks like. This is what the culture looks like. I deserve to have a house and a family and all these different things. That's not Bible culture. That's American culture. Paul, he didn't even have a wife. Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. In fact, Jesus tells us that it's harder for a rich man to get to the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, is Jesus saying rich people can't be saved? No, he's not saying that. But he's saying when you get caught up in materialism and you make that your God and you're putting that God before me, then you're not. If mammon or money or materialism is your God and Jesus isn't, then obviously you're not saved. And that's his point. The context, if, I, if you want to be reminded, is in Matthew chapter 19. It's the conversation with the rich young ruler. He has this conversation with this guy. This guy comes up to him and says, hey, what do I need to do to enter into eternal life? Jesus, he lists six of the four commandments or six of the 10 commandments. He leaves out the first four that pertain to uh, man's relationship with God. And he lists them. And the guy says, uh, yeah, I've done all of those through my from my youth. And then Jesus says, okay, one more thing. Sell all your goods, give them to the poor and follow me. What did the rich young ruler do? He walked away sorrowfully. Why? Because his materials, his possessions were his God. That's what he was concerned about above all else. See, this isn't just an American tradition. This was Jewish too. In fact, we see the Jews in Jesus' time, they believed that if you were blessed materially, that mean God means you were blessed by God. God loved you more. Why? Because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they had a lot of material possessions. Jesus clarifies that and says, no, that's not the way that it works, okay? Those things aren't directly connected. It's not about what you have. It's about who you have. You have a relationship with God. And he makes this clear in Luke chapter 16. He gives us this story about this rich man and this guy named Lazarus who was a beggar. And guess what? Lazarus ends up going to heaven, Abraham's bosom. It's another study. And the rich man goes to hell. Was it because one was rich and one was poor? No, it's because Lazarus had a relationship with God. He was a beggar, and because he was a beggar, he recognized his need for God. See, we see in the Bible that poverty can be a gift. It can be a gift from God. Why? Because when I have nothing, I realize he's my everything. I don't need anything else. All I need is Jesus. And when we get to that place of contentment, you know what happens a lot of times? God ends up blessing us more and more. Now, this is one tradition, the American dream. There are so many traditions that we could talk about in this uh, country that applies to this text. But the point is that when we fall in these traditions that contradict God's word, we're wrong. We're wrong. When we put our hope or our focus or our heart in the wrong thing, the wrong goals, not putting in first, it's always wrong. Traditions aren't bad. But if those traditions contradict his word, they are bad. See, God, he was using all these things to shape Peter. From Simon the Tanner's house, to the vision, to this conversation with these three Gentile guys, to lodging these Gentile guys in his house. Again, it was all building blocks. He was preparing him for this astoundingly powerful mission that he had for Peter to open up the door, literally open up the, 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 the door with the keys to the kingdom for the Gentiles to receive the gospel. See, the reason God did all this work in Peter's life was for people. That's what God cares about. It was about giving Peter opportunities to talk to people. It was about giving Peter opportunities to share the love of Jesus with people. Once again, that is what Jesus is concerned about. He's concerned about people. So even the transforming work that he does in our life, yes, he does it because he loves us, but it's not just because he loves us. He loves people. So he transforms us so we can reach more people because that's what he cares about. That's what his heart is set on. That's what he died for. 
Sometimes we can get stuck in these habits or behaviors or traditions or whatever the case may be. We can forget about people. We get stuck in, hey, this, I, I need to get to the next paycheck so I can get the next item for my house or so that I can get the next car or so that I can make my life more comfortable. That's not the Lord's goals. That might be your goals. He says, no, no, all these things I've given you, the positions, the roles, the places are about people. I'm trying to change you so you can reach more people. There are any things in our lives that are stuck in traditions, our culture, whatever the case may be. We can't forget the fact that God wants to produce changes in our lifestyle, in our character, in our traditions so that we can reach more people. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this text. We thank you that... um, God, you challenged Peter in the way that you did to teach us lessons, Lord, and we know you want to challenge us in similar ways, God. We know you do things in our life. You put us in positions and places to transform us so that we can be a light to the rest of this world, that we can show people the love of Jesus. God, so I pray that we would do just that, not just loving on people on the outside, who are maybe unbelievers, but also loving people that are on the inside of your family. God, because you gave us two simple, simply to understand commandments, to love you and to love our neighbor as ourselves. God, so I pray, Lord, that we would walk through our days considering the simplicity of those two commandments, yet also understanding the difficulty sometimes to make it happen. So give us the power of your spirit to do just that, to love you, to grow in a deeper relationship with you, and to love people as you loved us. In your name, amen.